I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the final installment of Waterloo Week on the Napoleonic Wars podcast. We have in store for you a meeting of mighty minds, as I have brought together four of my best contributors, not all of my best contributors, but four of my best contributors to this show, who have all given you much entertainment and enjoyment in previous episodes. As is fitting, as we wrap up Waterloo Week, we're going to focus on legacies, and I figured it would be great to bring together some of the best writers of this period, and particularly kind of the social and, and military and political and diplomatic uh, implications of Waterloo, to really drill down into why Waterloo actually matters for this period. So, I am joined by Evan Wilson, the author of Horrible Peace, which by the time this episode drops, it will actually be out and hopefully many, many people will have bought the book. If you haven't, go sort yourselves out because there was a brilliant episode back along um, about that and you should have pre-ordered it then. And if you didn't, then with the best one in the world, folks, you're missing out. Don't be a fool. Go buy said book. It's going to be brilliant. Evan is a lecturer at the US Naval War College um, and frankly, Horrible Peace is, I would say, one of the most hotly anticipated books to come out this year. So there you go. I think we've made the point. You need to go buy it. Not to be outdone, we also have Beatrice de Graaf, Distinguished Professor of History at Utrecht University. You've heard her on this show many times. She's a regular on these roundtable um, kind of pubs type sessions, um, but has also been on to talk about um, the terror in Napoleonic France. That's like the Napoleonic terror and sort of state control and all of that kind of thing. Um, she's also the author of Fighting Terror After Napoleon, which has won some of the big biggest European history prizes that exist. So, you know, kudos definitely owed there. 
We also have Luke Reynolds, who was on just yesterday. Quite literally, in fact, we recorded that that yesterday's episode yesterday, and today's episode we're quite obviously recording today. That was a profound thought, wasn't it? This is going to go well. Um, if you need a reminder, Luke is the author of the critically acclaimed Who Owned Waterloo that's won all of the, well, no, not quite all of, but most of the um, really um, well-respected first book prizes. And he is visiting assistant professor at the University of Connecticut, something which I hope the University of Connecticut really sorts out soon and makes just professor at the University of Connecticut. That's what's required. And last, but by no means least, we have Graham Callister, senior lecturer at York St. John University, author of War, Public Opinion and Policy, which looks at not one, not two, but three countries during this period. I remain baffled at how that's even possible in one book, but it is brilliantly done. And also co-author, I should say, of the best-selling battle understanding conflict from Hastings to Helmand. That was a lengthy introduction. Folks, great to see you. How are you all doing? Very well, thanks, Zach. How are you? The silence was deafening there. <laughs> I think we were just... all we were all waiting for everyone else to go first to be polite. I think we were all just stunned by the introduction there, Zach. Well, you're yes. the guys who went and did these things. It's not me. Um, <laughs> oh, oh but... I'm just stunned as to why I'm in this company. I've got to be honest. Oh, rubbish! You're here because you deserve to be here, and everybody knows it. Um, we're going to have a series of talking points on this one, and we're just going to sort of chew the fat and bounce ideas back and forth. There isn't really a sort of an agenda this time around. Um, and we're going to start not at the beginning, but sort of at the beginning-ish. What I mean by that is we're going to kind of stop take the situation in 1814 in order for us to then have that kind of point of comparison to then look at what's happened after Waterloo and determine, you know, what has changed and what is the significance of the battle. So I'm going to kind of give you a horrifically broad question. I'm not going to quite just say, what's changed in the world come 1814 compared to the start of the French Revolution? Because we'd be here all night. Um, but I do want to kind of tap into this idea of to what extent was it possible in 1814 to put the proverbial genie back in the bottle? A lot of water has passed under the bridge come Napoleon's first abdication. Um, whether that's from the start of the revolution or whether that's from the point at which um, you have the, the Brumaire coup. So how much of a sense is there that it's going to be possible to turn the clock back? And where are people sort of thinking about turning the clock back to when it when the, the war of the first, uh, the sixth coalition rather, comes to an end? Beatrice, do you want to start us off on that one? Yes, that's, that's a really very good question, and it hasn't been completely solved within Dutch historiography. Only recently I had a bit of a discussion, uh, uh, almost packed with a very honourable, esteemed professor in the Netherlands uh, who is a staunch Republican. And for him, 1815 was not a breach, not a revolution. It was just a setback from the truly revolutionary course that Dutch politics had started to 
take in the 18th, late 18th century with the Patriots and the Enlightenment. Uh, Jonathan Israel wrote about it. And then came Napoleon and he sort of stopped this development in 1815. The old orange Stadtholder family returned, this time with a crown on their head, and everything went back to the ancient regime. So in his view, his name is Wijnand Meinhardt, and he's very, uh, very much an esteemed uh, professor. So for him, it's very much continuity in a very bad way uh, that that demarcates the 1815 period. Whereas for other historians, I would say more younger historians, um, uh, perhaps not not very much the Republican ones. I wouldn't say that that most of us in the Netherlands are now monarchists, but um, the Republic with those Republican leaders, uh, liberal strongmen these days in, in Europe and abroad is not so popular either. So for younger historians, the monarchy is not such an anathema anymore. And for us, Matthijs Locke, uh, for myself, um, other recent publications, they really very much, this is a very good case in point. I didn't even contribute to this, so it's not my own uh, book. It's called A New State, the beginning of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. So that was very much, of course, for the Netherlands. In the words of Metternich, the lapdog of the great powers, it was a new beginning. And they were now plus monarchique, in the words of Castlereagh, than before. And uh, the Brits, they wanted to have a kingdom. So it was not even the son of the latest stadtholder, William V, William VI, who would now become William I. It was not even his uh, claim or lobby that he would become king. Uh, they were clever enough to wait for the British and the other great powers to ask them to become kings again, because the future was monarchist, the future was a unitary national state, because that only would um, preserve security, would produce security, and they would then also engage in collective security. And that was very much a novelty in Dutch history. So both externally, the collective security balance of power arrangement was new, and also internally, the unitary nation state with the, um, uh, the monopoly of violence, which was before that quite... Um, fragmented throughout the Dutch. It wasn't a kingdom, it wasn't a state, it was a conglomerate, it was an, uh, the Republic of the United Netherlands, it was provinces, so that was all new. I'm stopping now, but for the Netherlands, it, I would say it was quite a breach after all. Evans, I'm gonna, Evan, I'm gonna throw it straight over to you because you wanted to come in on something that Beatrice said there. Yeah, um, I, everything that she says about European politics there, I think, is really important and, and valuable from the British perspective. I think it's just important to remember that the end of the war, the Sixth Coalition, they're still at war. Uh, they're fighting the United States on the other side of the ocean, and now is a chance to maybe bring that war to an end. So um, when you asked this question initially, I was confused about when you were particularly picking in 1814, because a lot changes over the course of 1814. But in at the end of the war, the Sixth Coalition, in sort of the spring of 1814, the British are still fighting a war, and now they can relocate most of their resources from Europe, either home or to the United States. And so it's not it's not an end in Britain in the same way that it might be, or a beginning in, in, in the same way it might be in other countries. It is uh, still in the middle of, of a significant, not, not a European conflict, but it's still a significant war. Luke, let me bring you in on that, because I know we've spoken or about that sort of thing in the past at some length. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think Evan really put it very well. I mean, the British view it as an opportunity more than anything else, right? They've got possibly the best army they've put in the field in 100 years, and they suddenly get to deploy it to the war that they haven't been doing quite as well at. 
Um, and basically it gives them a chance functionally to try another seven years war, right? Let's put Europe to the side and let's concentrate on everything else. Obviously it doesn't go in anywhere near as well. Uh, but I think that is a point. Yeah. I, I, you know, Beatrice threaded the needle rather perfectly there. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really useful way to think about this because yeah, it is in many ways. It's, 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 uh, you know, a new state, especially for the Netherlands, but at the same time, it's important to note that politically, this is a conservative victory, right? They are trying to get back to the Ancien Regime one way or another. And I think the other thing worth noting is, is that at least for the people in Vienna, the people who win the Sixth Coalition, at least the head of that coalition, I don't think it's possible to put, to put the genie back in the bottle, but by God, they'd like to be able to. They really would. And I think it's a question of what they want versus what the people now know and what the people now think is possible uh, that's going to cause a lot of tension there. How much awareness do you think there is of the fact that you you can't put the genie back in the bottle? And I guess a, a follow-up to that is how, how far do you think they're willing to push it? I think that the intelligent ones know that that genie can't go back in or know that it cannot go back in as much as some of the others would prefer. Uh, in terms of how much they're willing to push it, uh, you know, it, I mean, Evans made this point very, very, very eloquently, right? Britain in the aftermath of this war is not a very pleasant place to be a radical. Um, and I think, you know, Beatrice can, can speak to this in terms of Europe itself. Uh, better than I can, but you know they're they're trying pretty hard. Evan, briefly, uh, whether Napoleonic armies marched on your soil made a big difference here, and perhaps Beatrice could could speak to this. But I think that um, that what the British do about the how they envision the the, the period after eighteen fifteen and how a country that had armies march across them for the last 20 years envisioned it might be very different i i would suggest and so i'll i'll leave it at that funnily enough beatrice wanted to come in anyway so beatrice over to you yeah very briefly to look i i i love what luke says and his work and everything but not the one sentence that it was a restoration of the ancient regime um i don't even think that uh the the, the leaders like Passeray or metternich or even the tsar or uh, william the first that they strive to do so, that they aimed for that. Um, obviously, it was not liberal democracy, so it's not a weak interpretation of history, but they spoke amongst each other of conducting an experiment. They spoke about um, finding a way to put an allied machine together that the world hasn't, hadn't seen before. So, of course, I, I did like what Luke said about the conservative revolution or conservative transformation. That was very much what was taken on. But with Paul Schroeder, the most eminent scholar, I'm very much in favor of the transformation of European politics that saw the light in 1815, not just externally with the collective security, allied machine, the, the various treaties, the solidarity pacts, but also in the way those nation states were now far more unified, unitarian on the continent, at least they were. They had constitutions, uh, they had conscription armies, a number of them. Um, 
uh, they had new kinds of of, of laws uh, dictating uh, the, the law on reparations, for example, the law on occupation. Uh, what you what what Evan just said, how troops had to behave, and it's not to say that practices didn't linger. As we know, history is always the art of continuities and discontinuities. But I would say that. Uh, it, it isn't just a dichotomy between ancient regime and modernization. It's the question, what type of modernization, of transformation? In that respect, I would say it's it's conservative in the sense that, of course, the um, possessing classes, the, 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 the vested elites, uh, the, vest, the vested interests of the landed elites are being uh, kept in check. Still, with uh, the Biens Nationaux, the, um, uh, how do you say, and Eignuen, um, um the taking taking away of all the lands, a whole new system of property law uh, was 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 implemented. So it, it was an experiment of some sort. It wasn't just going back to the ancient regime. But but I see Luke nodding already. Luke, let me give you the the right to reply there. Uh, I mean, it's you, you know, you're if you're if you're uh, if your listeners have come for a knockdown dragout fight, they're not going to get one from me on this. Beatrice is dead on right. Um, it, it, I'm falling. What I am falling victim to is is the oversimplification of trying to do the Napoleonic Wars in 45 minutes in front of a classroom, um, <laughs> and that's really what's happening here. No, she's dead on right. Uh, I will I will maintain, and I think she agrees with me that, that there are conservative elements here. Yes, uh, but the so. the the ancien regime, as you say, uh, not only can it not emerge again, but they don't want it to emerge again. So I I cede the point uh, without any argument. Elegantly done. But sitting very quietly whilst we've uh, discussed all of this has been Graham. Graham, let me bring you in. I'm also conscious that we haven't really sort of tried to take the French view on all of this in in detail. And that sort of feels like a bit of an oversight. Yeah, so we, we call this a, a restoration. Um, but what is really being restored? Uh, in France, they restore the monarchy, but they don't go back to the pre-revolutionary system at all. Um, the powers that Louis XVIII has uh, and the, the centralized government in France has in 1814 are greater than any fantasy of power that Louis XVI could have had. Uh, provincialism is gone. He does not have to uh, put up with these provinces that can do different things, that have different laws, that have different traditions. He wouldn't want to go back to that at all. The Ancien Regime, and that, that term itself is anachronistic, it doesn't really you know, exist. There's not not that sense that we, we as scholars have uh, in 1814. But... Um, that, that system of pre-1789 was so inefficient that no one wanted to go back to it. Uh, we see that in France. We see it in the Netherlands as well. Um, so the, you know, the, the the debates in the Netherlands in the 1780s and early 1790s uh, around federalism, around a unitary republic, uh, they're thrown out the window basically when Louis becomes king, um, a, a little bit before perhaps. Um, and no one wants to go back to that. And the British are insistent they don't go back to that. So they insist on this kind of centralized state. So what we're not getting with these restorations is anyone trying to go back to the inefficiencies that they'd had before. Instead, they take what Napoleon's brought, what the revolution has brought, centralization, efficiency, and they apply it to these monarchical regimes. I also think making a, a kind of dichotomy between ancien regime and revolutionaries in terms of looking backwards is, is a bit problematic. Remember, revolution as a concept is about restoring ancient rights. Until the French Revolution, Every revolution that happens is pretty much talking about restoring ancient rights, uh, even the American Revolution. Uh, why do they want no taxation without representation? Because it is the right of Englishmen. 
Um, now, of course, no, in reality, what they then demand is far beyond that. But the restoration of your, your ancient rights is something that revolutionaries wanted. And then when the restoration happens in 1814, it's an easy rhetoric to, to sell. You know, we need to go back to something. But as I say, what they go back to is, is much more centralized. Um, in France, they know that the genie is out the bottle in terms of needing uh, a, a constitution of some form. So the charter is created. They don't call it a constitution. Uh, they call it the charter. They know they can't go back and, and un-redistribute the land that had happened. Uh, they know that you can't simply impose the, the old nobility and give them the same rights. So none of that's even attempted. Um, but what we do see in 1814 is, I think, uh, in, in France, an attempt to uh, create a, a monarchy as, as it could have been under Louis XVI. Say had the revolution in July of, of 1789 been been led by Louis. Now, after the Bastille falls, he goes into Paris and says, okay, I'll be your biggest cheerleader. Let's create a new France. Um, that, I think, is what they're, they're trying to get. Basically, um, uh, a France that has a degree of popular input, a very small degree, voting of about 70,000 people, um, but it's got a charter and it's got a monarch at the, the head who, who gets his legitimacy as much from the people or a sense of the people as, as he does from divine right. So I think that's what they're, they're doing with the restoration. Does anybody want to come back on any of that, Luke? It's actually, it's not really coming back, but it's it's highlighting a point that, that Graham makes. And I think that also Beatrice and Evan have touched on, but it's worth worth noting, right? Uh, we're, we're talking about a quarter century of constant modern warfare, of a warfare that has evolved. And that requires streamlining, that requires um, new ways of thinking. It requires centralization, as Graham's pointing out. So they're learning the lessons of the war, and they're applying that to the peace uh, in more than one way. I mean, Beatrice can write an entire book on that sentence alone. Um, and I think Evans made the point as well. With you know, it's where the armies are marching that that is important. But you know, that 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 quarter century of war changes Europe from a purely governmental point of view, if nothing else. And I think that's worth highlighting. And um, Beatrice, you wanted to jump in as well? Yeah, yeah. just to uh, compliment Luke, uh, he behaved so elegantly before, but that is a beautiful sentence that I will use in one of my books. I'll quote you, Luke. What did you say about the war and now preparing for the peace? Um, so the, the, the 20, the, basically the war, had the, the, the 25 years of war had shaped, shapes the peace that emerges. Yeah, uh, I'll I'll see if I can remember exactly. Well, no, yeah. it's recorded. It was even more beautiful <laughs> before. That's a beautiful sentence, and it was one other thing that um, uh, Graham touched upon and, and mentioned, and that's very much a breach uh, with uh, the past before uh, the French Revolution, Napoleonic Wars, and that's the concept of divine authority. So no one in his right mind would use the concept of divine authority after 1815 anymore very seriously. Alexander did it a little bit with the Holy Alliance, but even he let himself be uh, convinced by Ned Metternich that it should be un an, an, an unification of the peoples uh, rather than of the holy uh, the, the, the holy leaders of the countries. The also interesting thing is, is that... Um, uh, before the French Revolution, on the continent at least, uh, the notion, I mean, you still have your King Charles and he still uh, rules with divine authority. And we've witnessed that with the coronation in uh, Westminster. But on the continent, after 1806, for example, when the Holy um, Roman um, 
the, the Holy German Empire, um, Holy Roman Empire germination was disbanded. Uh, the emperor, now king of Austria, said when they tried to argue with him in 1815 to take back the crown. So there were a number of smaller countries in Europe who felt more secure and safe by a restoration of the Holy uh, German Empire than with Prussia ruling the show. So they politely asked Joseph uh, to take to take the crown back. And he said, no, no way. Being king of Austria, it's ridiculous. I mean, I was there being the emperor of this holy empire. I'm the catagon. I'm um, um, uh, preventing evil from taking over the, the, the continent, which is the old ideology and the Christian theology behind uh, the empire. And then Napoleon just took the crown away. So he made a mockery out of that. So from that moment on, no one in his right mind could upheld that belief. And also King William, the first of the Netherlands, he didn't rule by God's authority. He, he claimed that he was a Christian king and he was, he created a new unified Dutch reformed church. But uh, there was separation of church and state in many other countries with constitutions as well. So not all in the same way, but the idea that they were uh, supplanted, imposed on their nations by a, a deity was now secularized it, it wasn't yet democracy there was no representation properly yet but it was the nation now that gave them the right to rule and from that the nation also came the new ideology behind waging war it was not the cabinet war of the king who could rule as he pleased he now at least has to had to ask some way or support within his parliament and that that's a novelty too that informs a new form of uh, waging war as a nation state there are lots of nods around the room. Um, I'm conscious of time, and so we will um, shuffle forwards, but I'm going to spring something on my guests because I'm a deeply unpleasant and peevish individual. We've got uh, three different nations represented in this call this evening, um, the US, the UK, and the Netherlands. And I just want to test um, something that I think is often taken for granted. We often talk about this sort of inevitability of the road to Waterloo following Napoleon's return. And I just want to sort of test your opinions on this. Um, is there another way in 1815 to deal with Napoleon's return that perhaps doesn't lead to Waterloo? And I'm very much asking that question with Evan in mind. Evan, take it away. Waterloo is a stupid battle that should never have happened. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's like... It's so dumb that Waterloo happens. And it's it's ridiculous that they put themselves in the situation where they had to fight it. So yeah, there was another way. Don't send him to Elba, or if you send him to Elba, keep him there. It, it's, it's actually not that hard. I, I don't, I, I the, the mythology of this battle with Wellington meeting Napoleon on the battlefield, heroically ending it all, fine. I, it's important, Luke, your book is valuable. I get it, but like, that the whole thing is stupid and like they they don't make the same mistake afterwards right when they catch him at the um you know off the coast of france they like they okay you're done now you're gonna send you to a rock in the middle of the ocean and you're lucky we didn't shoot you so you know yeah there was another way of dealing with napoleon but it was in 1814 more so than 1815 it was the Tsar's initial decision to send him to Elba that was the first problem. And then the fact that Metternich and Castlereagh didn't force him to change his mind. And then once he was on Elba, the British 
basically let him do whatever he wants. He's not a prisoner. He has an army and a navy. So he doesn't escape. As you say, Zach, he returns because he literally just gets in a boat and sails to France. And nothing about what he did was actually technically illegal. I mean, I'm on the record saying that Waterloo isn't all it's cracked up to be. So you've got a sympathetic ear here. Um, Luke, yeah, sure, your book's important. Um, <laughs> I mean, care, to, know, care I... to offer some thoughts? Yeah, no, the, no. The, the battle happened. I get that. I, I and, and therefore, its legacy matters. But it should never have happened. Is my point. No, I, I completely understand what Evan's saying, and I do actually, to a certain extent, agree with him. Right, but I mean, I, I don't take offense at this because there we can all name legendary historians that I would not put myself in the company of who have made their names writing the history of deeply stupid things that shouldn't have happened. Right. Like that, that I'm not, I'm not arguing with uh, what I would like to push back on. And I would, I would value the opinions actually of all three of my fellow guests on this is, is there another road besides warfare? Maybe not, at the, not, maybe not in the Valley of Waterloo, but besides battle and warfare, once Napoleon returns to Paris. Nah. They should have shot him. Bolusio um, certainly wanted to. He implored, uh, uh, he even asked Wellington whether uh, he would be allowed to do so. Um, and Wellington said that it wouldn't be sporty enough and that it wouldn't look fine for posterity in the textbooks later in history. So, and then Blücher had to grudgingly uh, uh, accept Wellington and said, well, he's an, an deceiving Nabob. Uh, that, that's what he said about Wellington. But he's right and, uh, well, let it go and it's your call and they completely ruined it. So I think you're right, but could they have circumvented the battle? I don't think so. I mean, they tried after Leipzig, uh, they tried before Leipzig, Metternich tried to argue with him. Napoleon didn't uh, shy back for any form of bloodshed as long as his grandeur was in play. So he would have he would have found a way to, to ambush them and to battle them. Mm -hmm. And I should say, like, one of the things that you have to do when you, when you do these sort of counterfactual things, it's really, you have to make sure that people at the time actually saw these, these paths. And one of the things about Napoleon's return, once it's already happened, is there are uh, there are certainly people who don't think that they should send a big army there, but there's really a binary choice. It's basically fight him or don't fight him. And given all the blood that had been spilled to get to that place and the threat that he clearly posed to European security, it's just it's really hard to envision another way out of it once he's back. My problem was that they let him off in the first place. No, I mean, yeah, utterly I'm fair. Not. And I actually, I happen to agree with both of you on that one. I was just curious. I wanted to hear the opinions of, of these two. I mean, following up on Beatrice uh, and Wellington just saying it's not sporting, clearly what they should have done is is fox hunted him. Wellington would have enjoyed that. He had the right? hands for it and everything. Exactly. They, 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 they should have uh, erected a tribunal. That would have been something. But oh, that didn't exist oh, in the mind of the early just know the court-martial no. of Napoleon. That's it. That's something that even I can't contemplate. That's turning my stomach. No, it's mind blowing, is it? You cannot just start to imagine how that would look. They would go on forever. Can you imagine Napoleon on the stand? Uh, he would. He would win in the eyes of the public. It would be a trial by media, and he probably would win in half of the continent. Mm. Yeah, but then you'd have um, what was it? What was the phrase that you used? Is it Faux Nouvelle? Faux Nouvelle. Fake news. Yes. 
No, very much so. And if I, if I may say so, there's one thing that we think we should be grateful for, and that is Waterloo, because only after Waterloo, the second return, and this, this tra tragic megalomaniac bloodshed, only then was the collective security of Europe really sealed. And you know my point, I've made it uh, uh, before, but uh, please allow me to make it briefly again. Uh, without Waterloo, the, my my iffy history take is uh, the Congress of Vienna would have been a paper tiger. It would just have remained that, a paper act, nothing more. They had those acts in the past. No one took them seriously. And only after Napoleon returned on the 15th of March of 1815, the countries that came back from their holidays and came back in Vienna. So they were still officially in Vienna between September 1814 and June 1815, but they did their business in February. So they went home and then they came back. And uh, Wellington had to secure all the signatories of the states committing, committing to a standing army that would remain there until the whole threat of Napoleon would have been vanquished, not just in war, it was not just the money being raised for the last coalition, but it was also what, what Luke before said, preparing for the peace. So this is the whole story of the Allied Council that then took shape, and that wouldn't have been erected had there not been Waterloo. So I think in that respect, Waterloo gave the paper treaty and the Kantian paperwork of, of a world peace, he gave it teeth. And it's practically what Gens, the Secretary of the Congress, said. So we need the paperwork, uh, but we also need the bayonets. And now they got the bayonets. Right, I but think. like 65,000 people didn't need to die to get that treaty to become... No, that's that's what I, I said. Totally that's the cosmic tragedy it. of it, of course. But otherwise, more people would have died still, hadn't yeah. they? Yeah. Uh, so Luke's question got answered pretty emphatically there. Um, but Graham, we haven't heard from you. You're, you're again. You're sort of sitting back and quietly contemplating before you launch your hammer blow. Yeah, well, no, I, I agree with everyone here. I think Evan's entirely right. This this shouldn't have happened. Uh, it's daft to let the man escape. Daft to put him so close to France again. But once he's back in France, I don't really think the Allies have got much choice. Um, they'd spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of lives getting rid of him the first time. Fundamentally, we need to remember, despite what the fanboys will say about Napoleon, nobody trusted him. By 1814, people do not trust him. Uh, he showed himself time and again not to respect treaties, uh, to try to push things, to try to get a little bit more. Um, no one's going to say, okay, we'll, we'll give you peace and let you build up your army for three or four years. Um, Britain had spent a lot of money getting rid of this man. Uh, they were still at war. Uh, you know, or, or uh, you know, at the end of of beating Napoleon, of course. Um, so you know, it's not like they immediately become a peaceful state. Um, but they spend a huge amount of money beating him, and they don't want to go back to that. They also spend a huge amount of money trying to secure France's borders afterwards, or rather, trying to hem France in. So, August eighteen fourteen, Britain signs a secret treaty with the Netherlands about the annexation of Belgium. Uh, they pay a million pounds to Sweden to buy them off to to agree to Belgium becoming Dutch. Um, they then pay two million pounds to strengthen the defences of, of Belgium, and another three million to ensure the the union of Belgium and the Netherlands. Six million pounds spent here. Uh, now that this isn't because necessarily they they have a great fondness for Belgium becoming Dutch. This is about hemming France in and stopping France having the the ability to expand into the Low Countries, um, and especially getting Antwerp. So Britain's defence, as you know, is based on Western approaches. Uh, stop the French from getting into the channel because Northern France does not have a port that can usefully invade Britain. So 
you know, Antwerp, if if that's under threat again, uh, you know, Britain feels they've got to go to war. So once eighteen fifteen, once Napoleon's back, Belgium they've spent a huge amount of money getting to the Dutch, but it's not yet defended. Uh, Britain feels they have no choice; uh, they're going to have to go to war. Um, the rest of Europe, I don't imagine they're they're going to sit back and watch that. So I, yeah, I think once he's there, they're going to have to do something. Um, but I agree with the the point. Waterloo should never have happened. No, Napoleon, shoot him, hang him, send him to St. Helena, send him to, to wherever. Uh, don't put him on Elba and then forget to guard him. So, yeah, Evan's point, I think, stands from the start. Very briefly on the pounds. Sorry, Graham. I know that the Brits are a great altruistic people who are only out there helping other people, paying for the peace and etc. Uh, but they were even more devious than that. They made France for a large extent, pay for the fortresses themselves. So they created this fund with based on the reparation monies that came in from France and uh, enforced by the occupation army of Wellington. And they would only go away after France would have paid um, over 800, and in the end it was even more than, than, than a billion uh, francs, to England, to the Allied powers, mostly also to the Netherlands, in the fortification funds. Only the fortification fund had 137.5 uh, million francs in it to finance the defense borders against France itself. So that was quite a masterful yeah. piece. In, in, Maybe, in eight, yeah. yeah, in 1815 they did that, but in 1814 they'd already committed to, to spend this. So before Napoleon comes back, um, yeah, eventually they they rip France off and, and steal all the money again. Very clever. Um, but in 1814 they were still willing to spend the cash to try to control France. Uh, no, and, and constrain certainly, it. Certainly, and they financed the coalitions and they made them come together in 1830. No, that, that's completely true. But just to say that they were even cleverer than that. The Golden Person, Cavalry of St. George. Britain being altruistic, I must have missed that memo yeah. somewhere along the way. I don't know how. But Evan, you've been itching to come in yeah, on Yeah, I, I just have a question. I, I think I probably asked Beatrice this question once when we were in Paris, maybe. But I, I've been, I'm a naval historian. I don't know you know, muskets from anything. Uh, so, so I need somebody to explain to me what the consensus is about the actual military value of the fortresses in the Low Countries. Because I've read both sides of this. One side says, oh yes, and big investment is very important. These are British war aims, keep them out of the Low Countries and all the things that Graham just said, that's all, that's clearly what they did. But I've also read people that said, in the event of an actual French invasion of the Low Countries, these things would have been basically dead weight and useless. Uh, which side is a better interpretation of the actual military value of these things? Um, if I briefly may, I think that's an excellent question. And um, I have tried to answer that in, in, in my book, Fighting Terror, which um, um, a chapter on exactly this question, what was the impact, what was the value of the fortresses? And to quote Wellington himself, he said as much that they were already quite um, uh, obsolete when they were created, because in the new day and age of quickly moving armies, heavily right. artillery power, what would you um, uh, gain by building fortresses still? He made quite the effort of constructing this Boulevard de l'Europe because, or he said, it will keep the powers of Europe united together and it will still make France pay. So it will align them 
And it was this political treaty connected to the fortification fund. The Prussians wanted a part of the funds, the Italians, the Dutch uh, uh, and the English also made sure. So Wellington visited up until the late 1820s, even after he became prime minister, he visited the Netherlands to inspect the fortresses. And he made sure that um, trespasses and, and fraud with the fortress funds was punished. Uh, uh, that took place in the Netherlands. Was, several engineers were sacked when there was fraud found out. So they took it seriously because it would um, slow down the march of the French armies. It would act as a kind of a conduit to alert the Prussians. Uh, there was a kind of a small garrison army of Prussians, uh, 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 German states uh, uh, furnished the Nassovian, they furnished troops and the Dutch. So they held these fortresses together. It was a kind of a conduit, it was a kind of an intelligence force, as you could say. Uh, and it would help the English organize, in Wellington's thought at least, I'm, so, I'm, I'm just conveying what Wellington thought about it, and we can argue whether he was in his right mind to do so, because the Dutch crown prince said, it's only a worthless heap of bricks and stone, and why do we have to pay for it? But they did so nevertheless, because it was that, I mean, they were the Boulevard de l'Europe. So I would say the political, the alliance value of the fortresses was quite strong up until the 1820s, and only stopped in 1830 when the Belgians uh, uh, protested against the Netherlands and became a country of their own, and then everything was obsolete at once. So there was quite a loss. But before that, I think the political value is not to be underestimated. And the French, at least, they saw it as a big threat. There's an interesting parallel here because uh, the British make a similar decision uh, in Canada. Um, they uh, yes. sign a treaty with the United States in 1817-18, the Rushbago Treaty, to demilitarize the Great Lakes because there's been a big naval building race on the lakes. Um, but the consequence of that treaty, which everybody agrees is a, a very important treaty for uh, it's the world's first arms limitation agreement, is that in order to defend Canada, the British decide to invest in a massive series of fortresses along the Canadian frontier, which cost way more than the naval building program would have if they just continued doing that. And so they there is a sort of value in these fortresses as outposts, as trading facilities, and as a deterrent uh, against the United States. But it's also lighting a lot of money on fire when there were cheaper alternatives available. So maybe there's just a fortress building uh, uh, mania here in the 15 years after 1815, in which uh, you know it's important to burn a pile of money to show everybody how serious you are about uh, keeping the alliance together or keeping the Americans out of Canada or whatever the, the goal might be. Lake? Yeah, uh, just to to jump on that. First of all, I adore Beatrice's point that they're, that they're actually political fortresses, not military fortresses. And to jump on that again, uh, and I'm not sure anyone was fundamentally thinking about this at the at the prime ministerial level, but certainly people below certainly were. Um, this is this war is ending. It's a quarter century uh, of war that's ending. People need jobs. Building fortresses employs people. Let's think about this in the in the good old fashioned congressional boondoggle sense. Uh, you know, it's it's making jobs for people that would have caused trouble if they were unemployed. I mean, That's Evan knows a thing or two about point. that, I must say. Evan, do you want to chip in on that? Do you, do you see uh, that? It's... Hey, that, it's the US Navy you're talking about here. Careful. <laughs> uh, I don't know of any evidence that that's why they were building those fortresses, but Luke could be right. That That's a perfectly legitimate reason to spend government funds is to keep people employed. Uh, but I, I don't know. Sorry. Beatrice? 
Um, actually, there's something to it, but also um, in the opposite way, uh, because in the 20s, I, I just briefly mentioned this this element of fraud that people were um uh trying to earn some money in scaving off the bu the budget for the funds and instead of creating them with severe uh, very good bricks that just filled them with sand uh, so they were practically useless and the people who did that were belgian contractors and they were angry with the dutch because they brought in uh, Dutch workers from the north, and then they also had to accept the fact that the deep Catholic Belgians, uh, Dutch Protestant services, uh, um, and then then they just tried to undermine this whole fortress project because they saw it as something that the northern Netherlands imposed on them. So there was this Dutch-Belgian rivalry already going on on the fortress building construction site with foremen complaining about the lazy Belgians. So there's, there's an interesting social story look uh, to conduct there. I saw some elements of that and there's more to be told. Okay, so I just want to be very quick on this next one and it's about impacts of Waterloo on individual reputations. And I'm not going to say you've got to talk about a particular person, but I think it's pretty obvious we'll end up talking about Napoleon. We'll probably end up talking about Wellington um, and there'll be some others along the way. But what's your sort of inverted commas hot take um, on the impact of Waterloo for whichever individuals you want to pick and just kind of throw out there for people to contemplate? Graham, do you want to start on this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you said we'd end up talking about Napoleon. I'm going to start talking about him. Um, Napoleon obviously comes out of this a bit, a bit dented from his reputation. Now he's been beaten again. Uh, this is one of the first times he's been beaten by an army about the same size in an open field without extenuating circumstances. Now he's not trying to cross a river like at, uh, at Aspenesling. He's not uh, massively outnumbered like at Leipzig. He's just thumped. Um, but of course, he immediately tries to shift the blame. Now, within months, he's already putting out his take on this, which is Ney got it wrong on the battlefield. Uh, Derlong disobeyed orders on the, the 16th. Grouchy, the, the evil Grouchy, failing to march to the sound of the guns. Um, and Napoleon um, manages to twist this narrative. And, and Napoleon's supporters you know, buy this. They, they drink it down. Um, and he, I think, manages to kind of deflect a lot of the the blame and therefore uh the, these guys that he tarnishes do come out quite badly in the, the first few years afterwards so Ney and Grouchy are blamed by Napoleon's supporters they have their own supporters who write in their defense uh Grouchy of course can write in his own Ney has his is a de camp uh and his I think his brother-in-law writes a or, or someone similar writes a pamphlet uh in his defense but they come out uh, you know, a, a bit tarnished. Uh, both, I would say, deeply unfairly. Um, Grouchy was precisely where he was meant to be. Had he marched to the sound of the guns, he should have been shot. Um, let's also consider, on the morning of the 18th of June, he hears some gunfire. What's he going to hear? Two batteries opening up from Corps, maybe? 40 guns from Derlon opening up? Say 60, 80 in total? Um, so what's he listening to? A battle that's going to decide the fate of Europe? A rearguard action between Napoleon and a few stray allied troops, he would have no idea what he's hearing. So anyone who says he should have marched to the sound of the guns is frankly nuts. Um, operationally as well, he, he had been handed a third of the army a day before and given a mission. To abandon that mission and then cut across Napoleon's line of march would have been stupid. So Grouchy is deeply, deeply unfairly maligned. There are things he did wrong. He, he did it a bit too much on the 17th. No, fine. But... Um, he comes out of it deeply damaged. 
Um, because Napoleon's supporters leap on him, they leap on Ney. Ney goes and gets himself shot, of course, uh, and executed, which somewhat rehabilitates him with the, the Napoleonic crowd. Um, you know, it's it's bad to blame a dead man. Um, so they come out badly. But other French generals kind of come out a bit on top. You know, people now have heard of General Cambron, uh, the, the man of the, the great word of the, the guard, uh, there at the end making a stand, uh, the polite version saying the guard dies but never surrenders. Um, he comes out as, as kind of the epitome of this heroic last stand that Waterloo is seen as uh, in, in France by many people. This is the last stand of the empire. This is France against the world. Uh, this is France standing there, uh, holding on uh, you know, against the Allies and gaining, okay, a, a defeat, but a glorious one. Um, and, you know, the fact that Cameron surrenders anyway doesn't occur to anyone. Um, but you get these different reputations from the generals, and I think it all starts with Napoleon. And it starts with his, let's be, be entirely honest, his fictional account of the battle, of what he wants to have happened and his blame game that he puts on other people. Um, in, in other countries, I mean, I think other people here are probably better suited to talk about Britain and, and their reaction. Uh, Luke has an entire book on this. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in the Netherlands, for example, the Prince of Orange comes out very nicely. Chassé, uh, who'd been a French general, very highly regarded, uh, he comes out very well from Waterloo. Um, you know, individuals' reputations are, are enhanced. Um, one that I will just mention before I, I shut up and let someone else speak, though, is, is Sir Thomas Picton. Um, a man of controversy, shall we say, in his lifetime, um, who had been convicted of um, agreeing to, at least, the, the abuse and the torture of uh, a, a girl in the Caribbean where he was, he was a governor. Um, he'd been convicted. He then appealed. And I, I don't believe the appeal ever actually returned a verdict, but everyone kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, oh, it will probably find him not guilty, so fine. Uh, and he got appointed to a command in the peninsula. Um, but he, he's, of course, killed at Waterloo. And I think his death stops any of the, the lingering criticism of him. You know, there's a reason that he wasn't made a lord. There's a reason he wasn't given more honors from the peninsula, which he's deeply bitter about. But he was a man of, of controversy, of some unpleasantness, um, a, a great commander, I'm sure, um, unless you're a rifleman, they hated him. Um, but his his death kind of puts an end to that, and he becomes a hero. He becomes um, lionized, uh, and and you no, know, until only a few years ago, when people started to to look at his reputation again, um, I think he was held up as a great hero from this. So reputations are made, they're broken, uh, but on the French side, especially, like I said, it starts with Napoleon and his rewriting of the battle. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
there's a lot that could be said um, in relation to all of that in, in terms of agreement. Um, but in the interests of, of hearing other people's far more interesting takes, I'm just going to pass it straight over to Luke. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll talk about Wellington in a second. I actually want to jump on Picton to start with because Graham very correctly brings him up. Um, I have met a descendant of Picton and uh, they came up to me and they said, you know, we, we did the whole genealogy research. Picton is my great, 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 great grandfather or uncle or something. He was an awful man. That was the second set of words out of their mouth was he was an awful man. So, yeah, I think that I think Graham's quite right on that one. Um, yeah, I mean, look, Wellington is a master of this. Wellington is a, is a master of of using uh, this sort of thing to self aggrandize his image. Uh, Napoleon was equally a master of this. I would argue that Washington was up there as well. The three of them are sort of brilliant at this. And yeah, he he definitely, you know, Waterloo becomes his trademark. It becomes what he guards. It becomes synonymous with him to the point where, yes, he's, you know, pushing the Prussians slowly out. Uh, I'll say from day two, because he is he is fair in the in the dispatch. But from day two, he starts pushing them out. Um and yeah, just just working that and using it also to benefit, uh, you know, his favorite officers as well. Uh, and yeah, there there is something to be said for for having fought there. There is something to be said for for you know if you if you are there wearing that medal uh, to the point where others are bitter they don't have that medal or they don't have a medal, right? So yeah, you know, uh, look if if you want a deep dive on this, read my book. Uh, not to be completely mercenary about it, but uh, or listen to the podcasts that Zach and I have done about this issue. Uh, I'm going to throw it. I want to throw it over to Evan actually for the the naval side. I mean, if you want to, I mean, this is one of those like only the nerds would really know about the naval contribution to Waterloo. But it, I mean, if anybody would, so this is about reputation. This isn't about what actually happened. In terms of what actually happened, the Navy actually comes off okay at Waterloo. It dumps a bunch of horses and a bunch of regiments and a bunch of ammunition on the beach at Ostend, and that's actually really useful. And the army then turns that into a victory. So uh, Sir Thomas Byam Martin is the guy mostly responsible for that. He's Wellington's uh, naval liaison uh, in the peninsula at the end of the war. And then again, at Waterloo, and then he becomes the comptroller of the Navy. So if there's one guy whose sort of naval reputation uh, is rescued by Waterloo, I'd say it's that. But I, I actually was going to go in a slightly different direction, which is to, without getting on Beatrice's territory here, but just to say that I think because Waterloo is a stupid battle that should never have happened, it rescues the reputation of all the people who allowed it to happen. So that's the people like the member, the delegates of the Congress of Vienna, who otherwise would look pretty silly if, well, if Napoleon had won at Waterloo, and I don't know exactly what would have happened after that. That's a good hypothetical. But the point is, it rescues the delegates at the Congress of Vienna. I'll let her speak to that. I'll speak specifically to the British politicians who were in my argument, largely responsible for having let Napoleon get off Elba in the first place. And their reputations are dramatically rescued by the victory at Waterloo. So in the month before Waterloo in Parliament, Liverpool and Castle, Liverpool especially, the Prime Minister is desperately fending off criticisms of how he could possibly have let this happen, which are very legitimate criticisms, because how could he possibly have let this happen? And then the great victory happens and everyone's like, oh, I guess it's all right then, you know, and it's it's fine. But like the month before, when you don't know who's going to win, yeah, the, there are a lot of politicians whose 
not just reputations, but careers and all sorts of things are on, on the line at Waterloo that, that don't actually participate in the battle. So there's my overly complicated answer. That was a great answer, not an overly complicated one. It's an angle yeah. that I hadn't really considered, which is a bit of an embarrassing confession. But hey, everyone knows I'm an idiot by now. Beatrice, let me get your take. I was uh, doubting between um, either Slender Billy himself or his horse, Waxy, that I would like to highlight today. Because a couple of years ago, I was in an exhibition on Waterloo 2015. And to my great astonishment, in the palace, they had this huge stuffed horse. So it's still there. It's Waxy. And it's one of the cherished pieces of the Dutch national treasure. Uh, because Waxy and his um, uh, master, Prince William, were both shot with a cannonball, um, uh, bullet ball, sorry, uh, at the fields of Waterloo, and they were immortalized with that uh, on the this famous painting where you also see Water Wellington in the middle of uh, J.W. Pienemann, which is in the Rijksmuseum, and you can also see the horse, Waxy, and um, that brought Prince William and the horse great fame, and the horse even survived and um, was kept by the prince until he was 38 years old, and then the prince let him be stuffed to memorize the fact that this was his 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 golden his golden hour his 50 minutes of fame and you all know there is contradictory evidence on what uh, William actually did on the fields of Waterloo so on the one hand uh, people saying that he was a fool a disaster waiting to happen but according to the Duke of Wellington himself he was a reliable courageous subordinate um, you all know that in many um, uh, uh, accounts of esteemed British historian Sibbern, most notably, the Duke of Wellington himself and others, the Dutch-Belgian effort is completely omitted. Um, but then again, later by the Prussians and also by the Dutch themselves, uh, unfortunately, most of them written in Dutch, there are lengthy accounts of how the Dutch did contribute to the Bottle of Waterloo. But it didn't matter much because at that moment, in the eyes of the public, the Prince of Orange paid with his blood and that of his horse for the resurrection mm. of the Dutch nation. And as I said, you have to remember that uh, the Dutch um, rose up to Napoleon only in 1813, after he was al already almost vanquished. And then only in March 1815, so in the week that Wellington was mobilizing the troops for the Battle of Waterloo, uh, that was the week when the Dutch king proclaimed the United Kingdom of the Netherlands, but it still had to be earned. So it was their way, both of William I, the king and his son, to earn their national um, resurrection on the battlefield. And to the king's great chagrin, he was very envious kind of man. He was very peevish and not very nice. And he was wounded ever so slightly, so not really. But he tried to complain about it, but his son was the real hero. And he became the hero of Waterloo in the eyes of the people with the horse, hence the stuffing of the of the poor animal. Um, and, and from that moment on, they were put in the pantheon of Dutch national heroes and Dutch uh, uh, royal uh, gloire uh, for the Netherlands. So I think in that respect, Waterloo gave the oranges some credit. In some yeah. respects, so we miss the fact that certain animals come out well of this because Copenhagen, uh, Marengo. Was, he stuffed? was Copenhagen stuffed? No, Copenhagen know. was buried with full military honors, but his uh, one hoof was turned into a snuff box. What, what was turned into a snuff box? One hoof. A hoof. Okay, good. Yeah. So I glad just you answered that one, Luke. I actually did it far better than I would, Evan. <laughs> I just had, I just got a text the other day from my colleague John Attendorf, who's in Amsterdam and saw the painting at the Rijksmuseum Museum the other day, and he, he texted me a picture of it, so I was looking at it. But 
Uh, why is Wellington, if this, if if the House of Orange paid for the the Netherlands with their blood, and this is the great triumph, why is Wellington in the middle of that painting with the spotlight on him, and the Prince of Orange is like kind of off to the side, getting carried away on a door, not the heroic Prince of Orange getting carried away on a door, but rather the he's literally exiting stage left, right? I mean, or stage right, whatever that is. So he's like. Well, if 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 Pinamon would have painted the painting ten or twenty years later, they may have put him center stage. But even the Dutch knew in those immediate years after 1850, that that would have been a slight bit of exaggeration. And you have to imagine that Wellington was called the Prince of Waterloo. So William was not the Prince of Waterloo; he was the hero of Waterloo. But Wellington was made the Prince of Waterloo, and he wore the baton of being a Dutch um, a marshal of the Dutch army. So he ran the corpses of the um, the army corpses of the the, the 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 some of the Germans, the Dutch, and the Belgian armies, and they were under his watch. And the king had relinquished um, supreme command to Wellington. And Wellington also was very much kind of, uh, yeah, that's it's beautiful. Wellington was very much a kind of an, yeah, how do you say, um, uh, a godfather to this new Dutch national state. It was a satellite to Britain. We don't like to speak about it aloud, but it was true. And uh, there were many uh, children's books. I have a friend of mine who wrote about children's books venerating Wellington in the Netherlands. So I think he was even more applauded in the Netherlands in the 1820s than he was in Britain, where he really had fallen from his... Um, um, uh, also, can you imagine the fuss he'd have kicked off? I mean, he doesn't like the cyber model because it's got too many Prussians on it. If he's not the centre of attention in this Dutch painting, he'd have kicked up the mother of all stinks. Luke? So a couple of points on this. Uh, number one, um, before he painted that painting, Pienman rose to fame with a painting of the P Prince of Orange at Quatre Bras. That's what made his name. Uh, number two, Piemann painted that paint, the big painting, in the UK, at least partially. Um, and it was Wellington's support that got him the studies with every with a lot of the other Brits that are in it. And thirdly, uh, had William I not sniped that painting, Wellington probably would have bought it. I think Piemann was was actually pushing for, for Wellington to buy it. It certainly was on display in London for a long time. Uh, they had to build a tent for it. It was so large. They couldn't fit it in any of the galleries. Uh, so I think that's fundamentally what is what is going on, those three. Uh, I, I just want to jump on uh, what Beatrice was saying about, you know, again, the Prince of Orange and all of that. Uh, not, you know, it's not just about uh, the Netherlands uh, national history and sort of the pantheon. Uh, but William I tries to use the Prince of Orange's blood sacrifice to meld Belgium into the Netherlands even more, right? That's that's a lot about, that's that's at the center of a lot of sort of Netherlands commemoration for Waterloo until the Belgian Revolution. It's the whole mount with the lion that's being built allegedly, probably not true, on the site of the place where the William was shot. And that again, allegedly has uh, prompted Wellington to make this famous remark, my God, they ruined my battlefield. <laughs> But it's, it's probably not true. true unfortunately. It's not no. true. It's I know, um, but it's you Victor don't have Hugo. to say that. I know it. Yeah, and but and this is the Gareth Glover line, which is also that well, it's only six foot of soil, and it's only between the point of the lion's mound and um, the main highway. So, is it really that big an impact? But it does kind of mean that we don't 
know what that section of the field really looks like. Um, I don't yeah. know. I sort of like and don't like the lion's mouth. That's a whole different, we can't go there. If you, want, if, you want a, if you want a humorous story that's true about a statue and a mountain and a, and a, and a, and a monument, um, there is a French officer who's visiting London after they put that god-awful statue of Wellington on top of Wellington Arch, the one that's now at Sandhurst, um, who is recorded as having said, we are revenged, having seen how bad it is. Okay, let's let's move things on. Um, attitudes to soldiers. This is um, something that, you know, I think all of you kind of touched on it at various points in your work. Go beyond the Waterloo Medal with this, because that's kind of the easy thing to point to here. Uh, and you've got an insight that, that goes beyond that. Soldiers, they aren't popular, right? Um, they're just not. They're, they're seen as many things. Um, and, you know, you don't really want your daughter marrying a soldier for a whole myriad of reasons. And yet you've got the Waterloo Medal, which sort of tries to create this air of reverence. So does the reverence actually catch on or is this all just a little bit superficial? How much actually changes in terms of how people view soldiers off the back of what is deemed to have been at stake at Waterloo? Evan, do you want to start first? This is very much your bag. Sure, though uh, this is Luke's bag, to be clear, and I am treading on his ground, but I, I will do my best not to mess this up. So I'll, I wanted to talk about Percy Shelley, who is uh, in 1819 in exile, and he hears about uh, Peterloo, which is the massacre of protesters in uh, mm -hmm. St. Peter's Fields in Manchester. And uh, so he writes several poems about it, not being in England at the time, to be clear, but he has all these poems with grandiose titles like England in 1819, right? And he's thinking about this. And from Shelley's perspective, a, a sort of radical but in exile perspective, he sees soldiers as obviously tools of an oppressive regime and part of this suppression of post-war dissent, suppression of radicalism and all the rest of it. But there are a couple hints in the poem where he thinks, you know, maybe soldiers are actually a double-edged sword in which if, he, if the radicals could mobilize the soldiers against the regime, then they would be a very powerful force for, for change, uh, for revolution, really. Uh, but the radical movement never quite manages to get their teeth into this. There are several mutinies in the aftermath of, of 1815, so famously in the lifeguard mutiny, I think, in 1820. And there, there are some big uh, mutinous uh, episodes in places where if a, a, an alternative history here is of radicals actually capitalizing on some of the frustrations in the army, um, they, they don't manage to pull off. And so the army consistently is the tool of the regime and does suppress rebellions at home, both of uh, soldiers who are uh, have recently been discharged and of, of regular civilian protests. So uh, in terms of the aftermath of, of Waterloo, if you look beyond the Waterloo Medal, I would say uh, the soldiers, there are chances you could see where soldiers could be something different, but um, in reality, they remain the tools of the regime that is there to suppress dissent at home because there's no regular police force. There's no easy way for the government to actually uh, keep a control on riots. There's no idea about, you know, spending, you know, on uh, social services or anything like that. So the army is often the sort of second line of defense against uh, uh, unrest. And therefore, soldiers are at the front lines, literally, of, of most of the post-war uh, distress. So that would be my uh, not cultural historian take on it, but uh, sorry, Luke, you can uh, correct me where I've where I've messed that up. 
No, I think you're pretty dead on, honestly. Um, we see right in the first fledge of victory, right? Yes, there are, uh, there, soldiers are feted. Uh, you know, they show up in towns and the, the mayor provides enough uh, money for them each to have half a crown to drink and this sort of thing. But within five years, uh, they're separated again. There's, you know, they are the police force, as Evan quite rightly says, uh, and it's pushing back. But at the same time, and I think this is this is the crucial uh, this is the crucial dichotomy, right? It's individuals versus the institution, right? The institution is looked on with trepidation, uh, but individuals, uh, you know, the average the old Waterloo veteran uh, is sort of a, a the old peninsular veteran is a classic archetype in, in theater in that period. And generally, if bumbling is at least seen as a decent human being, um, it's the young rakish officers that are traditionally the villains, the, you know, the, the Wickhams of the world. Um, but at the same time, you also have this sort of pseudo hero worship emerging out of the, the Waterloo banquet, right? Which is 60 to 70 crusty old generals, uh, um, in in what was once uh, beautifully described as a gold-plated military orgy, um, you know, and there, you know, and people follow that. They read about it. They sort of it is it is celebrity of the day. Can I just uh, say, nobody wants that image in their head. Literally, nobody. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so yeah, it is it is this dichotomy I think between the individual and. Um, and the institution that and and Waterloo burnishes it very briefly, um, and then it collapses again. Uh, I mean, it also depends on your your politics. You know, Evan very clear, very you know, very rightly br brings up Shelley and the Mask of Anarchy and all of that. Um, there's a there's some really I have done some work on on um, depictions of officers and caricatures and literature. Um, and you can really trace the politics of who wrote it based on whether all officers are lampooned or whether the old Waterloo veterans are used as sort of a base of decency and it's the new young officers that are lampooned. We need to have a conversation about that. Hold that yes, thought. We we'll come back to it another time. Do love a caricature. You know I'm a sucker for the caricature. Yeah, I you, do indeed. You've hooked me. You, you knew you were going to hook me, didn't you? You play me too well. Graham, you're our resident um, French soldier specialist, because we need to sit down and have a conversation about your research on French soldiers, which is blowing my mind. Um, but what's your take on on this? Uh, so in France, it's, it's all a bit different. They're obviously not not heroes. There's no medals. Uh, you know, Waterloo's a defeat. Um, and what happens when, when the army gets back? Early July, Davout organizes this uh, this convention with the Allies and says he'll withdraw the army across the Loire. Louis XVIII comes back to Paris, and then when Louis XVIII's back, he disbands the army. Uh, so all men are sent back to their departments of origin. Um, some of them are then enrolled immediately in the, the new army that he's creating, which is based not on regiments, but on departmental uh, legions, he calls them. So each department's going to have its own battalion, basically. Uh, so some men are enrolled in that, but a lot of them are simply sacked. There's no, uh, there's no pensions. There's no payoff. Uh, they're just sent home. Um, and there's a sense from from the ordinary soldiers they're quite happy to be home. Uh, a lot of them, um, especially the the relatively recent conscripts. Um, but a lot of the officers are also simply dismissed from service. Um, many of them are put on half pay. Um, it, it's not actually half. They get less than that. Um, and 
uh, these officers, in order to get their half pay, are not allowed to take other employment. They're not allowed to leave their domicile without uh, the mayor's permission, so that the town or canton without the mayor's permission. Um, and they're basically surveilled by the police. Um, and uh, it, it's quite interesting that for, for a couple of years, about 20,000 officers take this half pay. By 1817, it's down to about 15,000. By 1823, it's down to 5,000, uh, as they all give up half pay and take on other jobs. Um, but there is is a hardcore of kind of half pay officers, especially who hang around the cafes in France, swapping stories, saying, weren't we unlucky? And they are seen to be kind of hardcore Bonapartists and often revolutionaries. And these two often get conflated in police reports. Uh, I think Beatrice will know a lot more about the police reports than I will. Um, but they often get conflated. Um, as we know, there's probably more republicanism in the French army than any other institution in Napoleonic France. Um, but these officers, uh, you know, are, are begin to be a bit fated. I mean, there, there is the kind of caricature stereotype of the drunken officer propping up the bar, swigging wine, saying how great it was to march on Moscow. Uh, and that they become not, not, not quite a figure of fun, but um, kind of a caricature. Um, but generally, they, they begin to be increasingly you know, looked upon with, with some kind of favor. Um, to go back to Britain for a second, though, I just want to add one thing, and that, that's um, from, from some things I've been seeing about uh, petitions for clemency for crimes. Um, it seems that we've got um, a distinction in Britain between the idea of service. Everyone loves the fact that you know men served at Waterloo. They love this idea of Waterloo men. They don't like the men themselves. So what I've found in, in the Home Office records is um, a, a couple of dozen men who commit crimes in the 18, late 1810s, 1820s, even into the 1830s, get convicted and then they petition for clemency, normally because they've been transported for seven years, 14 years, occasionally sentenced to death. And their, their reason for clemency is, I've got a good character and I served at Waterloo. They almost never mention any other battle. They just say, I served at Waterloo. In, in three cases of found, there's actually people committed a, um, convicted of crimes who say, uh, I should be pardoned because my father served at Waterloo. Uh, one guy says his, his father was killed at Waterloo uh, and therefore, you know, hard upbringing. Another guy says, oh, uh, my father served 21 years in the army and was at Waterloo, so I should be let off. Uh, and another guy uh, again says, no, I can't be bad because my father was in the 33rd at Waterloo. So you, you get this sense that, you know, service should be rewarded. Um, on the other hand, almost all of these petitions are turned down. Uh, so almost all of these these pleas for clemency are ignored. Uh, one uh, is kind of signed by uh, about 40 people. Uh, Castlereagh endorses it and everything. So, you know, that, that's fine. They accept that. Another one from a Scottish guy uh, has hundreds of people agreeing to it, including the prosecutor, including the judges. Five members of the jury sign this petition for clemency. Uh, and so he, that this one's accepted. But I think, um, you know, in, in these cases, it's the, the men who, who attach their name to the petition rather than the fact of service. So you've got these guys basically petitioning because they served, thinking that the country will owe them something. Obviously, there's a, there must be a rhetoric in wider society to make them think that. But when it comes to it, they're given nothing. Uh, you know, this service means nothing. They are presumably seen as, as bad men, as dangerous men, former soldiers in need of being kept in check. So I think in Britain, there's also that dichotomy. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think others will know a lot more about that than me. I mean, there's a whole thing about, you know, sons not being guilty of the crimes of their fathers, but using your father to prove your innocence from a, another, that that's, that's an, I've heard some interesting defenses in my time, but that's a new one. 
Beatrice, let me bring you in on um, attitudes to soldiers. Yeah, very briefly, I think um, um, uh, Lucas um, Graham is touching upon a very important point. Uh, the soldiers were, as a group, um, seen as quite suspicious uh, segment in society. And Wellington wrote in July 1817 about them, the French Revolution has left in the world heaps of dangerous and unquiet characters who are becoming a focus of mischief, of conspiracy and rebellion nearly every country of Europe. And he was right. Uh, he, he also wrote, in Paris, I never go into any blackyard mob or place in which a fellow might insult me with impunity. And it's true. I mean, there were several attacks, some quite serious, in 1816, 1818 on Wellington. And this last attack in 1818 was considered to have been carried out by um, a group of veteran soldiers, demi soldier, who were actually stationed uh, in Brussels. And this is a, a trope that also um, rings through the German history. I mean, in 1816, 1817, 1818, 1890, there were various forms of uh, uh, commemoration of the war, uh, monuments, uh, um, uh, provincial governments, they organized local festivities, anniversaries, etc. And not just students on the war book, the very famous war book fest in uh, eight, 1817, but also veterans, soldiers participated in the wars of liberation. It's how the Napoleonic Wars are um, known to in, um, in, in the German lands. It was very much also a war of nationalist uprisings against the elites, against the kings and uh, the rulers. So for the soldiers after 1815, uh, it, it was important to kind of continue uh, their insurrection, their progressive war, uh, for, uh, work for a new national unity against uh, the, the princes and so on. And it's the same, it's, uh, again, the same theme that you can also see in Russia with the, 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 um, uh, the Decembrist uprising in 1825, where also some of the veterans, the Polyonic Wars, participated. So they were indeed a source of unrest for the elites. So from the soldiers onto the the sort of the wider um, impacts, we've talked a lot about the political and social impact on Europe. So I think we'll kind of go beyond that at this point and just talk about the impact on the wider world, which I think perhaps is the one that we don't pay as much attention to as we could and, and should. So what what is the impact on the wider world? Um, is this as simple as and I'm being deliberately kind of reductionist here uh, and oversimplifying, but is it as simple as saying because of the return of Napoleon, Britain is able to strengthen its position and hence we get the British Empire that we get, and it may have been a different version without it. Is, is that, well, obviously it's too simple, but Luke, tell me why I'm an idiot. Um, ooh, that's, that's far too tempting an invitation. So here's here's the thing. I mean, Evan Evan has very eloquently on this very podcast laid out the fact not not on this episode, but on this podcast has laid out how sort of how wounded England Britain was in the years immediately following the Napoleonic Wars. Right? They're feeling the stretch. They're feeling they're trying to tighten everything. There's a huge amount of pressure to cut down on costs in the army and the navy and and all of that. But at the same time, Waterloo becomes a crucial part of their rhetoric for the empire. We we bled our sons bled on the field, um, and that gives us the right to act as the world's policeman, basically, uh, and it gives us the right to introduce a century of European hegemony 
uh, British hegemony rather. Um, now that is not, you know, probably not an opinion you're going to find a lot of agreement with among in France, Prussia, Austria, the United States. Um, but it is one that is going to be touted quite a bit in Britain itself. So how much is the empire going to look different? I don't know. It's going to sound different, though. It's going to sound a lot different, even in Parliament. Beatrice, let me take it away from the Anglophone, um, or, or rather the English perspective, let's, let's be honest, the British perspective. Um, what was your sense about the wider global impacts of Waterloo? There was this great impetus after the Congress of Vienna that secured Europe, that from this moment on, security should also be exported beyond the borders of Europe and the countries of Europe should work together to enforce their type of imperial security, trans-imperial security on the others. So in 1860 is a direct spin-off of the Congress of Vienna. The Dutch and the Spanish, and even in discussion with the Russians, they set out to wage this European battle against piracy, for example. Another in interesting example is that uh, after the colonial possessions of the Netherlands were partly returned to the Netherlands by the British, uh, predominantly uh, in the Dutch Indies, um, they had first had this little ruffle with ruffles in Singapore, and they established the Anglo-Dutch Treaty of 1824 and secured each other their mm -hmm. most agreed um, uh, partner preference in the British India, Ceylon, Singapore. So that area of the world was also now brought under trans-imperial control. So it's not just British hegemony, it's also the Russians doing their part in the Mediterranean against the Ottoman Empire, uh, and they, they are not doing it on their own. They do it it through negotiations and ambassadorial conferences so the spin-off of waterloo is i would say uh, the allied commission model was then exported as a very strong european masterstroke of combined imperial hegemonic ambitions uh, towards other places of Europe. And it didn't work everywhere. They also, for example, tried their hands with Spain and Portugal in um, the Americas, and it failed there, uh, most notably. But in other parts of the world, uh, most notably the Mediterranean, Northern Africa, uh, piracy fight, um, uh, the, 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 the area around British India and the Indies of the Netherlands, there they pretty much secured their hegemonic rule as European imperial powers. I know Luke wants to come in, but I've just got a, a counter that's worth us considering here, which is the code, right? For for all that we could debate endlessly, to what extent is the Napoleonic Code actually Napoleon's? And that's a discussion for another day. Napoleon's The Napoleonic Code gets exported. And when nations are sitting down to write their constitutions over the course of the 19th century, one of the documents that they're drawing upon, sometimes exceptionally heavily, is the Napoleonic Code. So actually, in that sense, is the impact of Waterloo reduced in some way because the code continues to stand? Luke, do you want to pick up on that? Yeah, I do, uh, to a certain extent, because it, leaping off of what Beatrice says, you know, before the, yeah, let's say the 1970s, just to, to be conservative about it, uh, if Europe is united and at peace, it's bad news for the rest of the world, right? They have the resources to go elsewhere. They have the resources to do more. And yes, they have the resources to export the code, Zach, right? You know, 
Waterloo leads to European peace. It leads to stability, which then leads to France be rebuilding itself and going on its own further imperial ambitions that lead to the exportation of the code among other things. So yeah, it's got a pretty sizable world impact. Evan? So let me gently push back up against a little bit of this uh, idea that the Europeans Yes, obviously, after 1825 or so, this this everything that, that has been said here holds. But I, I do want to say that I think, just to respond to something that Luke said earlier, that 10 years after Waterloo, um, it's not as simple as peaceful Europe means bad news for everyone else, or is it as simple as um, the rhetoric of, of Waterloo uh, changing the way that the empire goes? Because for 10 years, the British can't do any of that stuff. And the only reason, for example, that the British end up bombarding Algiers in 1816 is because of the threat of the Russians in the Mediterranean. They're worried about the Russians doing something in the Mediterranean. They decide, hey, we need to, you know, we need to get on this, I think. Now, Beatrice and your student, Eric, know a lot more about this than I do, but that was my understanding of, of the uh, of the way it worked. And, and the idea is basically that the British are uh, supposedly in this great position, but not actually capable of exporting the kind of uh, power, certainly for about 10 years, uh, that uh, that they that their rhetoric might suggest that they would want to. No, but so, so I, I completely agree with you, uh, Evan. There and and Eric would too. It's just that after Waterloo, they realized that that it would be more safe to bind each other together than let yeah. the others rave on their own alone. So bind the Russians into this treaty. Eric yeah. wrote a chapter on this from Algard into Algiers in our oh. Securing a Europe book, where he very meticulously lays out that there were lots of diplomatic negotiations to bind them all to the treaty, and it was not again again it was not an altruistic campaign let's help each other it was to keep the others in check which is pretty much how collective security works until the present day well but i would also say that in other parts of the world the british aren't actually capable of binding anybody together so in the spanish american revolutions for example the british have to stand by and 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 watch the world burn and it's actually the united states navy that shows up to put the piracy down in the caribbean after the war to which british merchants respond why are you, why are the Americans doing your job for us, uh, Royal Navy? And then the Royal Navy just isn't uh, as present there. The the British turned down the opportunity to go back to war with the Americans multiple times over the course of the post war decade in places where you would expect this kind of hey we're the leaders of the world now we're going to go you know have to have it our way. Uh, you would expect them to to act on it. So for example, Andrew Jackson judicially executes two British citizens in Florida in 1818, 1817, 1818. And the British basically are like, uh, please don't do that again. And they move on. And, you, you know, otherwise in a place you'd expect a bigger response, there's almost a war over Oregon. And again, the British take a passive uh, uh, role there. And some of it is collective security. I agree with you, Beatrice, but I think others, it, it is just exhaustion that all of these countries just don't have the capability to rule the world for the 10 years after, after Waterloo. Graham, I'm going to give you the last word. Yeah, I think everyone's made some very good points here. Um, Waterloo obviously gives Britain a sense of of huge importance. They've beaten France on sea, you know, Trafalgar, their great victory. Now they've beaten Napoleon on land, not just France, but Napoleon himself beaten on land. So I think through the 19th century, it gives Britain a, a huge sense of, of superiority. And I think that only grows through the century. 
Um, I think Evan's, Evan's exactly right. In the 10 years afterwards, Britain's exhausted and Waterloo contributes to that. The campaign is massively costly. And as much as they then extort cash from France afterwards, um, now in the short term, that this has cost them some money. Um, so Britain isn't maybe in a position to, to go exporting things. Um, I do get a sense that, that Waterloo basically scares the Allies into to playing nicely. Um, you know, they, there had been fractures in the Congress of Vienna before Napoleon comes back. And OK, they were talking it through. They were working it out. But this makes them realize they need to get on well. Um, it scares them into to really making this collective security work a bit more. In the longer term, it probably does also contribute to uh, Europe looking outside of Europe. No, there are not, not going to be major wars between the major powers. Uh, so where can you export? Uh, where can you go? Uh, I know France goes into Algeria. Britain goes anywhere they can find that's got land and a bit of water nearby. Um, countries are, are expanding. Um, for the British in the long term as well, um, I, I get the sense that by, certainly by the Crimea through the 19th century till the First World War, uh, every officer that enters the army, some of the soldiers as well, want to recreate Waterloo. They want to be there on the battlefield. Uh, they want that kind of glory. Glory is what it's about. Uh, now, the memoirs of soldiers, and we know there's problems with memoirs, they talk about suffering plenty but they also mention the glory and that's what people are fixating on um and, th and this is where kind of you know the british army um really gets a lot of its culture from they're building on you know, waterloo as a, a memory other battles as well i don't want to emphasize waterloo too much but it becomes the key one um final word on that i suppose let's throw in something on the uh the later 19th century uh did you know the last member of the of napoleon's descent was killed in the British army, uh, fighting in the Zulu war, um, managed to go and get himself killed. So you now 1879, we get a full circle. We get Napoleon's great nephew, I suppose, uh, getting himself killed in British service um, as one of those, or, or alongside those officers who, who remember Waterloo, who want to act like they're there and who want that great martial glory that came from this victory. Um, I might be going a bit far there to link those two together, but I thought I'd throw it in anyway. It's a nice way to wrap up what's been a hell of a discussion. I know we could keep this going for the rest of the evening, but you have lives to be getting on with. Um, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you for sharing your insights with uh, our listeners. A quick reminder about the books that you need in your life off the back of this show. Evan Wilson's Horrible Peace, Beatrice de Graff's Fighting Terror After Napoleon, Luke Reynolds, Who Owned Waterloo, and Graham Callister's War, Public Opinion and Policy, and Battle, Understanding Conflict from Hastings to Helmand. Evan, Beatrice, Luke and Graham, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having us, Zach. Thanks. Thank you, Zach. It was an honour. Much love as ever to all of my Patreon supporters. Bear in mind, folks, that if you want to immerse yourself in the Napoleonic Wars pod universe, full of bonus episodes, a Discord server, um, the chance to socialise with the wider Napoleonic community, the ability to request episodes and even to attend a course, you now don't actually have to subscribe to one specific tier or set of tiers in order to gain the perks as a whole package. You can request individual perks and just pay the relevant fee for them. Drop me a message via Patreon or Twitter for more details on how to make that happen. Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice de Graff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Alexandra Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, 
Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Miles Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, James Fluick, Natasha Hobday, Roger O'Donnell, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, Ted Andrews, David Milinski, Stephen Gillen, Richard Anderson, Andrew McCall, Time D, Samuel Moore, Stephen Ashworth, and Stephen Flanagan. The Admirals, David Priest, Rob Coughlin, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, Michael Guest, John Haynes, Steve Carter, and Kate Walcombe. The Marshals, Ger Brown, Roy Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, and Sean Sullivan. The Emperors, Graham Swidenbank, J.C. Kaiser, and Adam Green. And the Legion de Scholars, Dan Hazelworth, David Maxwell, Liam Telfer, and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.